you'll make your way to Luke <coughs> chapter 2 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 2. Phyllis Rutledge knew all too well what it means to wait for someone that you love to return home. Her husband, Howard Rutledge, was a Navy pilot. He had been assigned to numerous tours of duty aboard aircraft carriers or stationed at bases overseas, and the separations were often long and hard for Phyllis. But for Phyllis, the ache of waiting for her husband's return was never more painful than their last and final separation. On November 28, 1965, Captain Rutledge led his fighter squadron 191 off the runway of the attack carrier USS Bonhomme Richard in the Gulf of Tonkin. Their mission was to destroy a bridge in North Vietnam. Officer Rutledge had completed over 200 successful sorties in his life, but on this mission, his F-8 Crusader jet was hit by enemy fire. Howard ejected successfully a split second before his aircraft exploded into a ball of fire. He was captured on the ground by North Vietnamese and imprisoned in a concentration camp in Hanoi. Raising their four children in San Diego at that time, Phyllis was informed that her husband was missing in action. They had good reason to believe that he was alive, but did not learn that until later. Phyllis Rutledge, think of this. Put yourself in her place. She waited for her husband Howard to return for over seven years. And he did. February 16, 1973, a passenger plane carrying Captain Rutledge landed in San Diego to cheering crowds. For seven long years... Phyllis had faithfully waited for this very moment. You can imagine her nervous excitement welling up within her as she stood waiting in the crowd as the airplane landed and then taxied toward the people. And suddenly, after that long separation, there he was, standing on the tarmac, showing the signs of torture over the last seven years, but unmistakably Howard. He saluted Admiral Joe Williams, then looked into the face of the crowd, and their eyes met. And Howard Rutledge tells the reunion this way, Then, out of the crowd, she ran and planted her full body tackle on me. Her feet left the ground and almost knocked me over. All my plans to hold her at arm's length for one long moment to tell her that I loved her were forgotten. Thank God. Things were back to normal for the Rutledge family, but they would never be the same again. How hard it can be to wait for someone you love to return home, and how great the joy when they finally do. As followers of Jesus, we should know in a very different way, but in a very real way, the experience of Phyllis Rutledge. For the one that we long for, is gone. He will come back. And so we wait with anticipation. Jesus Christ came once, and we read, uh, sung the, the words today, We honor you, our risen Lord. We praise you, coming King. We consecrate our lives to you with thanks for all these things. We've sung the song of those who watch for His first coming 
earlier today, we sing it as we look for His second coming. And so we identify with those who watched for that first coming, and we hail two such people in Luke's account of the early days of Jesus' life on earth today in this second chapter. Messianic expectations, you will remember, were at a fever pitch in Israel. Most of the anticipation, of course, was very corrupt. People just wanted a conquering Messiah to knock Rome off of its pedestal and to allow the Israelites to have freedom to rule themselves once again. But there was a small remnant within the land. Some referred to them as the quiet in the land. They asked for no violent revolution. Their concern was not ultimately with Rome. They knew that the great concern was really with their own hearts, and they longed for Messiah to come. And over the centuries, these people had prayed and waited and had looked for the one that their heart longed for. They wanted Him to come. They wanted Him to visit their land for Messiah, as had been promised, to set up His kingdom over Israel. They were the quiet in the land. They prayed. They waited. They looked. Their prayers had now, as we come to Luke chapter 2, been answered. Israel's Messiah had been born in a cattle stall in Bethlehem of Judea to a peasant girl from Nazareth named Mary. In accordance with the promise of the angel Gabriel, the fulfillment of the prophetic hope of the Old Testament had come. Messiah had been born. The night that he was born, an angel alerted a number of shepherds to his birth. They have gone into Bethlehem. They have proclaimed the birth of Messiah Remember, Mary is there and ponders all of this in her heart. She begins the healing process after the birth of Jesus. Following the delivery, she and Joseph find residence somewhere in Bethlehem, probably with a resident somewhere, or or rather a relative somewhere. The text now shows the young family is participating in a series of birth rituals that were stipulated by the Mosaic Law. First of all, we find in verse 21, where we pick up from last week, that Jesus is circumcised and named. We'll notice several of these birth rituals here in the first part of this section. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So as with John the Baptist, chapter 1 verse 59, Jesus is named on the eighth day of his incarnate life and is given the name Jesus. The Greek word means Savior. It is the Hebrew word Joshua. He had come to rescue his people. The source of this name is, of course, Gabriel and ultimately points back to God the Father. We have God the Father naming his son here through the human instruments that he has assigned the stewardship to raise this boy. His name, says Gabriel, will be Jesus. And Mary and Joseph name him exactly that. His mission will be to save people from their sin. The rescuer had come. Now we notice just in this simple verse here a number of issues that I think are important to us. First of all, we notice that Jesus was a man. He was circumcised just like every other Jewish baby boy living in Bethlehem at that time. He wasn't partially man. He was fully man in every sense of the word. We also notice that Jesus was a Jew. Why circumcision? Remember, this is the rite by which God ratified His promise his covenant to Abraham in Genesis 17. And God later reiterated this requirement to Moses. By circumcision then, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are identifying with the people of God. His parents are 
evidencing that Jesus is an Israelite. This rite was a visible symbol of their submission to God's will, to God's law, and all of its requirements. So as God's eternal Son, Jesus was the giver of the Mosaic Law, and here He is dedicated by His parents to keeping the law that He, in one sense, had given. It might be illustrated by, a, let's say, a wealthy man who is in contact with some people that are starving to death in a third world, and he writes a big check and pays for all of the village to be fed for an entire week. And as he writes that check and sends it off, he also contacts an airline, flies over there, and sees the village gathering around the first meal that his money has provided, and he gets at the back of the line and waits in line for his bowl of soup. That is, in a sense, what Jesus is doing here as he is circumcised. He's the giver of the law. He is the God of the universe, but he submits to obedience to the ritualistic law of Israel. Jesus didn't need this law. Jesus would fulfill this law in his heart, but he submits to the Father's will, and he fulfilled the law to perfection in his life and in his ministry. So Jesus is circumcised and named. We notice secondly at verse 22 that Jesus is redeemed and dedicated. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The explanation for this biblically is verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Then, after that parenthetical statement, verse 23, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. God's law for Israel was stacked with ritualistic imagery. If you've read the Old Testament even once, undoubtedly you've picked that point up to understand uh, this relationship between God and His people under the Old Covenant. These rituals were intended to visibly remind the Jews of the holiness of God and of their own sinfulness. And we take as case in point the purification laws. There were many ways that Jews could innocently contact ritual uncleanness, and there was an elaborate system of law that provided for their purification to bring them back to a state of of cleanness. One was rendered unclean for all types of very natural matters in their life. There was nothing evil about many of these things. Uh, In fact, really, as far as the purification laws go, there wasn't anything evil about any of them. If you touched a dead corpse, for instance, you would become unclean. Now, perhaps there was sin in choosing to touch that corpse, but very often, in fact, it was the responsibility of the family to bury their loved ones. You had to touch a dead corpse. It wasn't your fault that they died, and there wasn't anything you could do but to touch that body as you laid it to rest. But that rendered you unclean. And so there were purification laws to bring you back into a place where you could once again approach God in sacrifice at the temple. All of this very involved system, we don't have time to look at today, but all of this very involved system was a way of, again, pointing to the Israelites that they were sinners by nature and bringing them to a place where they had to acknowledge the holiness of God. He is not easy to approach. It takes very hard work 
for God to be approached in purity. And these purification laws indicated that. Now, one of these stipulations of the law dealt with childbirth. When a woman had a child, there was a purification sacrifice that had to be offered. A lamb and a pigeon. A lamb for a uh, burnt offering and a pigeon for a sin offering would need to be presented. Now you notice there at verse 22, you maybe saw that, verse 22, when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed. Who is their purification? Who is impure here? Who is unclean here? It may just be a general phrase referring to the family, their time of purification, Mary specifically, but the family comes to purify. Or it could be that perhaps in some respect, Joseph has contacted ritual impurity as well. And so they are coming with their offering uh, before, to the temple. At any rate, Mary is purified in obedience to God's law. At the same time, Jesus is, you notice verse 22, presented to the Lord. Then we have this parenthetical statement in verse 23. What is that all about? As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This ritual is also steeped in symbolic meaning. Remember when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the firstborn on the last night was taken in death. But the Israelites, of course, with spreading the blood on the lintel of a, of a lamb, was passed over by the death angel. And God always wanted Israel to remember that deliverance. And so every firstborn had to be redeemed. And in the situation that we have here, Joseph would have taken five shekels to the temple, would have walked across that great temple court, found one of 13 receptacles, and dropped his five shekels in to redeem his son, his firstborn, Jesus. So in obedience to the Mosaic law, Jesus as the firstborn and Mary as his mother and even Joseph uh, carrying his son or with his son, his legal son, are there to redeem their boy as a firstborn and to purify Mary through this sacrifice and perhaps Joseph as well. So we sort of get the picture of them now walking across, strolling across the great courtyard complex leading up to the temple as they want to give this this, uh, monetary uh, gift to the temple, and as they are to offer now this sacrifice. So Jesus is circumcised and named. Jesus is redeemed and dedicated, as he is, as the word says here, presented to the Lord. And we now note thirdly that Jesus is received and celebrated, beginning at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. The individual to whom we're introduced here is someone we know nothing about, but he is going to receive Christ at the temple courts and is going to celebrate the coming of Messiah. We notice first of all a reference to Simeon's character. What was this man like? What made him tick? All we know is that he was righteous. He was above reproach with respect to God's law. We know that he was devout. He was actively involved in God's service, is the idea. In a word, Simeon was a God-fearing man. He poured his life out in devotion to the Lord. 
Simeon's focus, we notice in verse 25, his character, he's a righteous, God-fearing man. His focus, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? What is the consolation of Israel? The consolation of Israel was a term that the Jews used all of the time to refer to the Messianic age, the coming of Messiah and his establishment of the kingdom. Simeon spent his life longing for this age to dawn. This was his focus. The Greek text indicates that Simeon lived out his days in active, anticipatory hope and expectant longing for Messiah to come. If you know Jesus, you've got to like a guy like that, right? This is his life, is to look for Christ to come. He wants the consolation of Israel. He's not looking for Rome simply to be knocked off. He's not looking for some great military leader riding a white horse that's going to kill a whole lot of people and establish his kingdom. This man, Simeon, is looking for a person. He's looking for a person that he loves to come. He's never met him, never seen him, but he knows that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of God, and that's where his focus is centered. We notice the Spirit's presence in Simeon's life. The next phrase in verse 25, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, right at the end of verse 25. 